We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. We'll talk about the economy how it could be reconstituted and reorganized on a new basis so that the needs of the people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, we have a few stories we want to cover in the small amount of time that we have available. Um, let's just first start with what's in the news, which doesn't mean it's necessarily the most important, but because... It's in the news. People will be talking about it. Uh, Joe Biden has decided to pick the former chair of the Federal Reserve Board, Janet Yellen, for Treasury Secretary. Now, I, I want to ask if this appointment has any significance for you. I mean, of course, the first uh, Treasury Secretary was Alexander Hamilton. That was way back in 1795. Uh, he ended up dead in a duel. Uh, but that aside, um, in the last couple decades, or certainly in the last 20 years, we have Steven Mnuchin, Jacob Liu, Timothy Geithner, Henry Paulson, John Snow. Uh, many of these were, were bankers, and in, in particular from Goldman Sachs. Uh, again, uh, you would think, well, if they're from Goldman Sachs, they're going to be thinking about what's good for banks and what's good for Goldman Sachs. What about Janet Yellen? Does it signify anything to you? Well, I should begin by uh, being transparent. Uh, Janet Yellen uh, was a classmate of mine in uh, at Yale, uh, getting our PhDs in economics uh, at, very closely at the same time, pretty close. And so I know exactly what kind of education, what kind of training she got, because it's the same that I got, because we had the same teachers, literally in the same room. Um, she is, and there's no, no way of getting around it, she is a conventional post-World War II economist. What that means is she's not a banker, she's not a spokesperson for corporate America, She's an academic, 
basically. She's married to another well-known economist, likewise liberally in orientation. Uh, they're both from California and all that that means. What you're going to get is what you've had in the past, uh, particularly with Democrats. You're going to get more of what you got under Clinton or under Obama or under Lyndon Johnson or pretty much all that you've seen all along. Um, it's not going to be as right wing as Mnuchin uh, or folks or Geithner or people like that, but it isn't going to be very far from them either. It's going to be what I think you should expect from Mr. Biden. It's not as harsh as the Republicans. It's not as extreme uh, as the Republicans. It's not as in your face right wing as the Republicans. But it is exactly the kind of mentality and the kind of policy and economics that paved the way for the Mnuchins and the Trumps and all the rest of them. And so for me, watching it, my biggest fear is that the appointment of Janet Yellen, and indeed of many of the others, I don't mean to pick on her particularly, but the appointment of such people is a carrying out of one of the themes of Biden's campaign. He's going to get us back to normal. And by normal, he means pre-Trump. And the problem with that idea is that the normal pre-Trump is what created the appetite for Trump and the base for Trump and the bitterness and the anger for Trump or that at least Trump was able to ride into office. So I feel very bad in a way that we're not having anything like the break with the past that the severity of the crisis demands, unless, and I believe this is not going to happen, but there are a few of my friends who have developed the idea that Mr. Biden, Janet Yellen, and the others will be pushable by the left, by the AOCs, the Bernies, to do far more progressive kinds of things than they have ever done before or have ever indicated any interest in. But I'll give them this. Franklin Roosevelt ended up doing the New Deal, but he campaigned for office for the first time when he won the presidency as a balanced budget conservatives Democrat. And yes, he was pushed, but there is a crucial difference. He was pushed by a powerful alliance from below. The CIO, the greatest unionization drive in American history, two socialist parties and a communist party, all of which had enormous numbers of active militant people. That's what pushed Mr. Roosevelt. Nothing like that exists now that could or would push Biden and Yellen in anything like a comparable way. Well, that, uh, Richard Wolf, is an extremely important point. Uh, and I think for our audience, uh, it's very important to go back and, and read 
about what FDR's campaign was like in 1932. It was not a left-wing campaign. It was not a reformist campaign. Roosevelt himself came from the very, very top of the elite. Uh, But as uh, Professor Wolf is mentioning, uh, in the beginning of the 1930s, there were two socialist parties, a communist party. The communist party had about 10,000, maybe 11,000 members at best in 1929 when the Great Depression started. Uh, Within a decade, it had 100,000 members and probably a million followers. But even more importantly, uh, by the year 1934, there were general strikes in Toledo, Ohio, Minneapolis, Minnesota, San Francisco, starting with the sit-down strikes. Uh, Maybe a thousand factories were seized by workers who were afraid that uh, the unemployed might take their jobs if they left their, the factory. So they just seized the factory in, in what were called sit-down strikes. I mean, that environment of radical demands, and, and this is something that people don't know, I guess, I guess because anti-socialism or anti-communism became more or less a, a religion in America, an unofficial religion after 1945 during the Cold War, that whole history has been extinguished And so people might think, well, the New Deal, meaning unemployment insurance or Social Security or all the other attendant benefits were sort of gifts from a far-sighted, a visionary politician like FDR, and we're all supposed to be waiting for the next visionary. But Professor Wolf, it was a radical movement. Absolutely. And there's no reason that I can see, having looked at this history repeatedly in my life, There's no reason to believe that Roosevelt could have or would have done it without the push from below. It's not just that the push from below uh, gave Mr. Roosevelt the idea. It did. And it's not just that it gave him, uh, in a sense, the notion that there would be lots of people to support it. But perhaps the most important was that those demonstrations... Uh, that you talk about, that were daily events, workers seizing factories, workers marching down the street saying they wanted a moratorium on rents or they wanted uh, higher wages or better working conditions. Roosevelt was able to use those to persuade or to terrify, and the line between those is often fuzzy, Uh, to persuade the recalcitrant uh, political groups in America that they better let him uh, proceed with the New Deal because if they didn't, something much more drastic in the way of economic change uh, was around the corner. And he could not have said that to them or they wouldn't have believed it if there weren't the agitations in the streets in an ongoing way. Look, let me give you a parallel. Um, Police in America have been abusively uh, treating African-Americans for a very long time. But when there was a reaction after uh, George Floyd and so on, Michael Brown, of people going into the streets week after week, white people as well as black people, etc., saying this is not tolerable anymore and we are going to be here and we are going to ramp up our activities. Something has to be done. If you have that, imagine that, 
Now imagine it focused on economic change. Now imagine it well-organized with many different groups participating. Then you get an idea that the kind of response and reaction that the Black Lives Matter movement generated was generated back in the 1930s only on the economic front and with a much bigger collection of powerful organizations. That's the voice of Professor Richard Wolf. Professor Wolf joins us in this weekly segment where we talk about the biggest economic news of the day and of the week. Uh, Professor Wolf, uh, I, I thought it was very noteworthy how you started. You said uh, Biden is promising to take us back to normal, uh, meaning pre-Trump. And as he said, sort of in his own ineloquent way, uh, nothing will fundamentally change. That was his promise to the American people. Now, big sectors of the uh, economic and political establishment, I think, had had enough of Donald Trump, I think they felt, even though Trump gave them a great deal in terms of tax giveaways, uh, his destabilizing conduct was, you know, more or less a liability for the United States globally. Uh, but here's the Washington Post. Uh, this was an article that came out April, uh, November 23rd. Biden's nominees have pushed policies that Trump used to fuel his rise. And then the article goes on and says... Uh, Biden's picks are all known quantities whose nominations signal a return to a more predictable era of American policy. Now, that's exactly what you were saying. Now, when you go down this article, they talk about one of the new uh, new picks for Biden. His name is Jake Sullivan. He was a national security advisor to Vice President Biden. He will now become national security advisor to uh, President President Biden. Here's what Sullivan said, and I think this is extremely important for people who care about the issues that we're talking about. Sullivan, who supported the Obama administration's TPP trade pact, has since acknowledged that Democrats, quote, overlooked, close quote, the potentially negative consequences of such trade deals on American workers. Trump blame both his 2016 opponent, Hillary Clinton, and Biden for destroying manufacturing jobs with the NAFTA trade deal. In a September report, Sullivan, that's the same person, Jake Sullivan, underscored how trade deals can drive employers to pull out of U.S. communities and disrupt the livelihoods of people with few available alternatives. Democrats have frequently responded to this problem with federally funded economic assistance programs, which Sullivan said were often, quote, too little too late. Now, Professor Wolf, he says they kind of didn't see it coming. They didn't understand how this might have an impact on communities and workers when they passed NAFTA and the, the, all of these other free trade agreements, so-called free trade agreements. Uh, which basically made the industrial heartland of the United States in large measure the Rust Belt. I mean, it became rusty, not because it was simply old machinery. It became rusty because it wasn't being used because corporations went to Mexico. They went to South Asia. They went everywhere in pursuit of low wages. And now, now these people say, well, now that we think about it, hmm, 
we might have overlooked how bad this might impact uh, American workers. Let's talk about that. Well, I think it's actually worse than you are saying. So let me uh, push a little further than you did. I don't think this is a government policy. In other words, we didn't have the hollowing out of our industrial heartland um, that they're talking about because the Republicans or the Democrats did something. It's the other way around. The initiative was taken by business, not by the government. Corporations in the 1970s particularly, they had done a little of it before, but it really took off in the 1970s that corporations decided to shut factories uh, and warehouses and even offices in the United States and move them to other parts of the world. And they did it for very well-known reasons. Number one, the wages virtually everywhere else in the world uh, were much lower. They went, for example, particularly to places like China, India, and Brazil, where they were extremely lower. Number two, in those places, there were fewer regulations, for example, around the environment, or fewer worker protections that cost companies money. So they got that advantage by leaving. And the third big reason was that with modern technology, particularly the internet and the jet airplane, they could supervise and visit production facilities tens of thousands of miles away, either instantaneously with electronics or in a matter of hours with jet airplanes. Therefore, there was no reason to stay in the United States. You could monitor what you used to do across the street. You could now monitor it across the world. And you could visit it, and you could check on it, and you could manage it. Meanwhile, you were paying a fraction of the labor cost. All that business wanted from the Republicans and Democrats, both, was to not get in the way. And neoliberalism, the, the notion that the government should be keep its nose out of the economy, that was just a polite way of saying, don't interfere. We plan to replace American workers either by foreign workers or by automated machinery, because the 1970s was also the era of the computer that evolved into the robot and that now is evolving into artificial intelligence. So between the technical automation and the export of jobs, the government's job was to get out of the way so we can make money. Since you can't say it that bluntly, we use euphemisms, language like neoliberalism itself, or deregulation. You have some politician get up there and say, I want to liberate the, the private initiative of the capitalist. Yeah, that's very nice. But what it means is I don't want to be stuck here in the United States where a century of capital labor struggles have driven wages up, have made you need to have a toilet for the worker and not work them more than eight hours. And if you do, you got to pay them time and a half. All these rules, regulations, wages, working conditions, benefits, cost capital money. And they wanted to get out of having to pay that money. Uh, blaming the government is this peculiar American arrangement. 
The capitalist kicks you as an employee and you blame the government. This is wonderful. This is an incentive for the capitalist to kick you again because you don't get mad at him. You don't get angry at him. Look, the 10 million people that are currently unemployed, if you take the minimum number, they were fired by an employer, not by the government. The 5 million people who have lost their homes in the last few years were kicked out of their homes by the lenders who provided them with the mortgage to get the home. For these people to be angry at the government is very convenient because it leaps over, their anger does, the people who actually stuck it to them, the employer who fired them and the lender who's evicting them. And, and this notion that we get angry at the government is only furthered when you have a, a character like Sullivan saying, oh, we overlooked something, as if the Democrats, what they look or overlook, made any of that happen. They didn't. The only thing the Democrats could have done was to stop the process, and they were way too far into the pockets of big business in America to even dream of such a thing. That's Professor Richard Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, since we only have a few minutes and time goes so, so fast, I want to go on to another story, which I know you've seen, and I think it's so important. And it, it's actually important to every community, every neighborhood, and in fact, every person uh, in this country. And that has to do with what comes next with COVID-19. Now, uh, the government has subsidized drug companies to create a vaccine. Uh, the number of companies are, you know, rushing to see who will be first. And, you know, we have the, the, the normal competition between these different large-scale government-subsidized corporate capitalist entities. And, of course, they're also competing with other countries to see who will get the vaccine first and all those kind of things. But uh, going back again to the point that we were just touching on, the role of the government and its relationship to the economy, the role of government and its centrality versus uh, the the impact of corporations. And, and also, I think this speaks to the larger question of what kind of governance works? What kind of system works? What kind of system works for the people? I mean, when we think of COVID-19, I just watched a video about people in Wuhan, which was considered to be the, the starting point or the epicenter back in January, December, end of December 2019, January 2020 of COVID-19. Now today, uh, Wuhan, which is a, a city of 12, minute, 12 million, the center, the capital of a province of Hubei, which is 70 million people, like the size of France, uh, I saw a video, everybody's crowded into a ferry going across a water. There's no social distancing. They're going to an amusement park. They're going to have fun. Uh, they also are going to shop and they're going to their jobs. And guess what? There's no COVID-19. This is a year later. Now, the U.S. had a couple months to prepare for it. Instead, Donald Trump you know, minimized and the Democrats didn't do much better. They sold their stock when they heard about it. Uh, when they got insider information. But here's here's an article from the New York Times. Missing from state plans to distribute the coronavirus, colon, money to do it. The government has spent billions to drug companies to develop a coronavirus shot, but a tiny fraction of that to localities for training, record keeping, 
and other costs for vaccinating citizens. I want to read the first paragraph. With the prospect that a coronavirus vaccine will become available for emergency use as soon as next month, states and cities are warning that distributing the shots to an anxious public could be hindered by inadequate technology, severe funding shortfalls, and a lack of trained personnel. Now, Dr. Wolf, we're, we're told a Wuhan and Hubei province success was, that was a, a byproduct of an authoritarian model, Chinese model. That was bad. And we live in the wonderful free market and we don't have an authoritarian model. We have a democracy. But when you think about the virus and the comparison of how the two uh, systems have, have gone together or, or failed in the case of the United States, it's quite a remarkable divergence. Again, what a, what a situation. There could be a vaccine, but the states don't have the money and are ill-prepared to actually distribute it? Yes, that is the correct thing. Let me start by saying unequivocally, the Chinese, the People's Republic of China, has managed brilliantly to handle this virus. And the United States has not matched that performance. And you can dance up and down and you can babble about freedoms. But in many other societies other than China, they were also able, like the Chinese, to mobilize and coordinate a mixture of private and public enterprises, private and public resources to deal with this virus, like the Chinese did successfully. Let me mention them for those who don't know. South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and I could continue. Countries with much, much better results than the United States has, even though they are nowhere near as rich as the United States. So yes, anybody who reads that our cities and towns are incapable, of, can't get the money needed to cope with what is now the worst failure of dealing with a public health crisis, it really does boggle the mind. But let me drive home what the economics is. Currently, we have roughly 900,000 fewer public employees working for state and local governments than we did a year ago. In other words, during an economic crisis second only to the Great Depression, happening together with the worst viral pandemic since 1918, another, uh, another century ago, in this horrible situation, what we need, of course, are more public services to compensate, to cope with the public health crisis and the economic depression. But in our messed up ineffective system, we have fewer resources in the cities and the states, nor is there any mystery. If you have 10 million to 20 million people unemployed, they're not earning money. Therefore, they're not paying taxes on the income they're not earning, nor can they buy the way they used to, so they're not paying sales taxes either, etc., etc., etc. So cities and towns, unless the federal government steps in, are going to be pinched for resources at just the moment our society needs more public services. This is so crazily ineffective that you kind of have to wonder whether you're watching a bad 
movie here rather than a capitalist economy. But it's the reality of how capitalism works. If I have a moment, let me explain again. We know how to produce masks and gloves and ventilators and hospital beds. We have the factories, we have the raw materials, we have the workers, and we have the machinery. So why didn't we? Why didn't the companies that make masks, gloves, ventilators, and everything else produce them, store them in warehouses around the United States, maintain them, watch them, clean them, preserve them, fix them, replace them? You know why? It isn't profitable. Those are very expensive things to do. And then you take the risk that they may sit in that warehouse that you're paying for five years or 10 or 20 before the next bad virus comes. So private capitalists decided to use their equipment and their raw materials and their workers for less risky, more profitable ventures. The reason we didn't have and ironically still don't have adequate equipment is because it wasn't profitable in a capitalist system which puts profit first to do those things. Well, okay, you might say, there is a solution. We know what the solution is. The government could have come in and said to all those producers, I'll buy your gloves, your masks, your ventilators as fast as they come off the assembly line. And then at the government's expense, we'll put them in warehouses and we'll monitor them, clean them, and replace them. And then we would at least have had them. And we know that the government can do that because that's how we run our national military defense. It turns out it's not profitable to make a missile and store it in a warehouse until the next war when it might be needed or a tank, or a machine gun, or anything else. So you know what the government does? It comes into those military producers, and as fast as that jet comes off the run, uh, comes off the assembly line, or that tank, or that gun, or that you fill in the blank, the government buys it at a nice price, giving that company a nice profit. Then the government, using our taxes, puts it in a warehouse, monitors it, stores it, repairs it, makes sure it's good in good shape for whenever the next war makes it necessary. What we do for the military, we didn't do for public health. And now we know the stupidity of closing hospitals the way we did over the last 30 years of allowing private profit to dictate whether or not we're ready for the next virus that could hit us. The incapacity, the inefficiency, the murderous consequences of capitalism's failure coupled with the government's failure, the only word that I can think of to describe what has happened in this country is shameful. That's what's that is Richard Wolf. We are out of time. Professor Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to go to his website. Check out his work at rdwolf. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F, two Fs, rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, thank you so much. We're going to join you again next week.
It's my pleasure. I look forward to next week. These are important conversations, and I appreciate your making them happen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.